0: welcome to Prickly Politics. This is WFUV's podcast on New York City and state politics. I'm your host, Julia Agos.
1: And I'm your co-host, Andrew Millman. And welcome to season five of Prickly.
0: For this season, we're going to be releasing episodes covering the 2020 races in New York State, as well as some explainers on current political issues.
1: Yeah, that's right. I'll be handling the race coverage and we'll mostly be covering candidates who are self-styled progressives, challenging moderate incumbents, who are typically considered members of the establishment. We're covering these candidates because in New York state, the Democrats dominate the governorship, the state Senate, and the state assembly. And especially this year with Trump on the ballot, it looks to be another decent year for them. So it is unlikely that the Republicans will be able to flip any of that. So The real question is how far left the Democrats will go. This is what we're going to try and answer in this season.
0: That's right. In New York State, a lot of times primaries are where the races are run, you know, Republicans in New York City especially have a hard time beating Democrats in general elections. So the real politics of these races plays out during the primary. And that's why we're focusing on this type of coverage for this season.
1: Exactly. And this episode will focus on a challenger in New York's 12th Congressional District, which is currently being repped by Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. The district includes the Upper East Side of Manhattan and the western portions of Queens and Brooklyn that are typically considered gentrifying. The challenger's name who I will be interviewing is Suresh Patel. He is a law professor and Obama campaign alum from both 2008 and 2012. He ran last cycle in 2018 and did surprisingly well. He got 42% of the vote. And right now he's looking for a rematch to try and actually defeat Carolyn Maloney. So we'll see if that happens.
0: And Andrew, where is Patel positioning himself in this race?
1: That's an interesting thing because most of the candidates we will be looking at in later episodes are those that would consider themselves socialists. He does not. He would say he's still a capitalist who wants to reform the system. He calls himself a progressive.
0: That's interesting. So, you know, if we were going to talk national politics, would he be more of a Bernie or an Elizabeth Warren supporter?
1: That's a question I ask in the interview, and he would say he's more of an Elizabeth Warren Because he would not consider himself a socialist and But he definitely likes a lot of that platform that Elizabeth Warren has that is still a capitalist, but definitely to the left of most of the Democratic Party.
0: Right. And as we said, the primary is really where the politics play out. And it's it's important to remember that in New York state, the Democratic presidential primary is April 28th. But the congressional and state races primaries aren't till June 23rd. So be on the lookout for both of those races. But Patel, his election won't be until June, right? No, yeah, he'll be June 23rd. Um,
1: that's when the congressional races are. And we'll see if he can actually defeat Carolyn Maloney this time. And let's listen to the interview. Thanks for coming on the show. Can you just tell our listeners why you're running for Congress?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, first up, thank you for having me. Um, I really appreciate it. And truth is, I'm running for Congress because we desperately need change in our political system and in America. And I think everyone can agree on that for November. But I think the point is here that if you want change in November, then we also need to change some of our you know, entrenched Democrats that embody the worst parts of the political system that we've all come to detest. You know, the promise of New York, education, opportunity, upward mobility, it's broken. And we need new leaders with bold, progressive, innovative ideas to uh, be in office. We know what energetic representation looks like, and I think we all deserve it now.
1: Now, some of our listeners may recall that you ran for Congress in 2018 and you got surprisingly close to uh, the incumbent Congresswoman Maloney in that race. It was the same uh, primary that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez defeated Joe Crowley. I'm just wondering what lessons you took from that experience and what you're doing differently this time, maybe.
2: Totally. Totally. Yeah, so we ran last time. We had a tremendous campaign with a ton of energy and excitement. Um, we had 250 volunteers. We did 100,000 door knocks, and unfortunately, you know, we came up a little short. So we got more votes than anyone in any district in in New York challenger history. I, we actually, you know, got 6,000 more votes than uh, AOC. We campaigned together, by the way, and we became friends. AOC and I. But you know, we still lost. Part of the reason is obviously Maloney took the threat seriously and really sort of actually fought a campaign and, and turned it on. And so we at least know, you know, that we know what her sort of not asleep looks like. To answer your question, though, I mean, we learned—I think the biggest lesson I learned is you can't run a campaign premised on talking to only the people that 100% agree with you. You know, we motivated an 800% increase in millennial turnout versus 2016. 47% of the voters in our primary had never voted one before, and we won the bulk of that. But, you know, our district, in order to win it, we need to talk to older voters. We need to talk to voters who we really didn't, uh, you know, spread our message to effectively— Some of that's tactical, you know, in terms of the way, you know, in in doorman buildings and stuff that you can reach out to people with mail and things like that that we really didn't use effectively. And some of that's message. You know, we, we really did talk a lot about generational change, about climate change, about student debt and all those things. But certainly, you know, we need to we need to also talk about issues that maybe affect other demographics.
1: Now, the 12th District comprises mainly like east side of Manhattan and then like western portions of Queens and Brooklyn you did very well last time in the parts of Brooklyn and Queens that are in the district that have been undergoing gentrification in recent years and not so well in the Upper East Side. Why do you think your message played so well in one part of the district and not the other? Yeah, so we have,
2: you know, almost a tale of two districts, right? We East River bisect New York's 12th district. Now, I'll give you, give you this is the most unequal district or, or at least one of the most unequal districts in America. You know, it's in the top three and it, sort of they change every year. It is also the wealthiest district in America. And on one side of the East River, we have Park Avenue and Fifth Avenue with zip codes that have per capita incomes over $300,000 per person and some of the highest net worth in the world. On the other side of the East River, we have two of the largest public housing projects in the Western Hemisphere. We have a significant number of service industry workers, you know, and young people and creatives in Greenpoint, Williamsburg, and Astoria. So it is just. A dramatically, you know, disparate district with different age demographics and groups. I'll actually give you a, the reason that it was built like that, by the way, is that it was in 2010 when New York lost the seat and we had to sort of redistrict, the nor- normal or natural thing would have been to build districts horizontally in um Uh, Manhattan, right? So the Upper East Side, Upper West Side are very similar. Demographically, income-wise, you could have built a district that actually sort of is compact and and similar. But they didn't want to put Nadler and Maloney against each other because Democrats also participate in incumbency protection and gerrymandering, as you well know. So uh, they sort of drew this this whole thing out like that. So I think one of the reasons we did well in some parts of the district is because, demographically speaking, they're different. Another reason is, obviously, as an insurgent candidate, you know, we focus a lot on door knocking and, and digital ads and all those kinds of things. And they tend to hit younger people more. And Admittedly, we didn't do a good job of sort of uh, reaching out to some of the older demographics that do live on the Upper East Side. So... I think that, the, both the message side and the tactics, feed in that.
1: You've mentioned gerrymandering. Congressmen don't really have a direct role in the redistricting process, but congressmen do have some varying degrees of influence on in what they want to happen. Would you recommend to the state legislature, were you elected this year, that the district gets drawn differently next time?
2: No, let me just tell you this. You know, obviously, I am absolutely in love with the district that I I'm running in. I've lived in it since I moved to New York City full time after um, I grew up. And I love all parts of it. I really do. And so I'd love to keep it as it is.
1: Now, your campaign has put out sort of a signature policy position for you. It's called the Family Opportunity Guarantee. Could you just explain some of that and specifically universal pre-K and the public option for child care? Because most of the experience New Yorkers have with those types of programs is marriage de Blasio's initiative on universal pre-K and 3K. Could you just talk about how that could be scaled up to a nationwide model? Well, I think
2: that New York is a case study in showing that this is can be successful. So I think the way we've fashioned it out with nationwide pre-K and also a nationwide child care option is an extension of the public school system down to, um, you know, the age of child care and then pre-K and then kindergarten that's how we're envisioning it the military does this really effectively it has universal child care on bases and then universal pre-k on bases and so that I think is another interesting model but again i think you know new york you know is shows that this can be successful that it improves Performance and test scores and all those kinds of things. The point is now the nation should have this and, and we should, you know, sort of look at every model to implement because, you know, in many, many states, for example, in New York, childcare is more expensive than college tuition. And so, as we we're always talking about these things, it should be a priority first off as we we're always talking about other costs. Well, so I think that we took a look at this and really grappled with it and thought of several reasons to make this universal. I think Democrats should focus on distributionary programs. So Social Security, Medicare, very popular because across all swaths of Americans, because the universality of them. Now, if you have a kid, you have a kid. Having a child in our economy is not in our in our market system is a market failure uh, because it's not monetarily rewarded as an activity that is necessary to the economy. Right? So raising a child costs you things and it is work and it's not being rewarded with pay in any way. Our economy does need children after all to grow up to join the workforce. So we're looking at this as like, okay. You're raising a child, no matter what, at least we should kick in $6,000 for that child, no matter who you are, uh, whether you're rich, poor, whatever. We also believe the universality makes it popular. And lastly, the cost differential isn't that high, because when you're looking at just families with kids and you start to cut it off at 200000 or some other number, it just doesn't increase the cost enough to make it worth antagonizing or sort of making it less popular, and that's why we looked at it this way.
1: You mentioned the universality of government programs. Does that extend to Medicare for all instead of a public option and free college instead of debt-free college?
2: Yeah. I mean, we're still putting out a, a college plan as we speak right now, debt-free college. We believe that public college should be tuition-free, but we're trying to make sure that we can go further than that, that it's really difficult, not oftentimes not just tuition, but the additional costs during college that make it impossible to go to it without graduating a lot of debt. So to answer your question, yes.
1: Where would you say you fall on the ideological spectrum within the Democratic Party? You mentioned uh, your friendship with Representative Ocasio-Cortez. Would you align yourself with her in Congress? So I'm, an insurg- so
2: I'm an insurgent because I'm running against a less progressive challenger or uh, incumbent. So, and I think stylistically, you know, utilizing every means at your disposal, not just, you know, going to Congress and passing dead end bills that don't become law because of the Senate and coming back here and cutting ribbons not the kind of congressperson I'd be using every means at my disposal to further the progressive agenda, and I consider myself a progressive. Then is what you'd expect from me as a congressperson. There are, you know, obviously some differences here and there in how we look at the economy and stuff like that, and how we regulate it. As a person who teaches the, as a professor and an attorney teaches at business school, I think the market means a significant reform in order to increase competition. I think antitrust enforcement has been completely a failure horizontally and vertically for uh, decades, almost a century, to be honest with you. And that invisible tax people pay is not a free market. I wouldn't consider myself a socialist, though, a democratic socialist. But up to that, I really do believe that we need significant reforms in the market to increase competition, to level the playing field. We need to get money out of politics. I think corporate PAC money should be banned. I think you know, in so many ways, I align myself closer to sort of the new progressive wave than I do with the establishment.
1: So maybe, like, you might reject this comparison, but Elizabeth Warren calls herself <laughs> still a capitalist instead of Bernie Sanders, who does say he's a socialist. Is that? I do.
2: Yeah, I think that's about right. And frankly, it's funny. That's an easy way to explain it. And I do, I do really believe in a lot of those one's policies.
1: You mentioned your insurgent status against the Democratic establishment. How mm-hmm. do you think Speaker Pelosi has done in her first year back as Speaker, specifically with the impeachment process? How would you rate her job?
2: <laughs> it got me in an uh, interesting question here to pick a fight. I don't want to. No, I'm just kidding. Look, I think the impeachment was was a mistake, not not impeachment itself. I called up for that last December, months before Carol Maloney did. But I think the way we did impeachment was clearly a mistake. I think that We need Democrats who have the guts to call a criminal a criminal. You know, Donald Trump extorted, he bribed, he's corrupt. Those are words the American people understand. And the Democrats in Congress made a conscious decision to, including Congressman Maloney, who was, you know, part of the Government Oversight Committee and brought these charges. Because the evidentiary burden of a criminal trial is is higher than that of a civil trial, they decided to choose articles like obstruction of Congress. And what I think they made a mistake on is assuming that the Senate... Republicans were going to be impartial jurors and trying to run that kind of trial. If you knew they were not going to remove the president at any cost, at least tell the American people why you impeached him, the real reason why you impeached him, and let them remember when they go to the voting booth in November that this person was charged with bribery and corruption. I think we should have, you know, doing impeachment, go all out. Go ahead and, and call the president what he is, which is a criminal.
1: Should Speaker Pelosi keep her job in the next Congress? Would you vote to reelect her?
2: I'm a, obviously a fan of competition in politics. I'm challenging a 24 year incumbent. And so I think no one should ever automatically accede to a job. I can't answer that question for you because I don't know who those candidates would be. But I'd be open to looking at folks. And, you know, based on the sort of tactical prowess and ideology, I'd I'd be open to other folks.
1: Now, you mentioned term limits before. Assuming term limits don't get passed and you mentioned incumbents wanting to protect themselves, would you set a personal term limit? Uh,
2: Yeah, I think I would. I think that I support term limits for all office holders, but I support term limits and I would, I would support, I mean, I would voluntarily leave Congress at some point. I just, I, let me promise you this you won't see me in the same job for 24 years. That just seems crazy to me.
1: So I can't get you to give a number right now? 12? 12? Okay. 12 years or 12 terms?
2: 12 years. <laughs> 12 years, not 12 terms.
1: For my listeners, the thing they might recognize Congresswoman Maloney for in recent news, has been her advocacy for the 9-11 Victims Fund. And she was the primary sponsor of that. She campaigned for a long time for that and did get it passed in a um, bipartisan way in a Congress that doesn't really do that anymore. Why shouldn't voters take that as evidence that she can still do her job well?
2: I think that Anyone in New York's congressional delegation, everyone was pushing for that bill. It wasn't just uh, her. But I congratulate her for passing it. Obviously, these are our heroes, and they deserve to be taken care of. I wish it happened a decade earlier because this shouldn't have been this long of a, of a sort of hot potato that has that waited. And I think a lot of families, that uncertainty caused a lot of turmoil and all that. But look, it's done. You deserve recognition for the things that you've done, but you also then bear responsibility for the things you have not. I think that is what should be taken into account here. A lot of people on both sides of the East River that have been left out of the representation that they deserve for the last 24 years. And I'm running to represent all of New York 12, every single person, Um, because the promise of New York belongs to each and every one of us. And so that's why I think I'd be a better representative.
1: Okay, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. And um, is there anything you would like to add before I go? No,
2: I really appreciate you having me on, and just stay tuned. Please check out um, our socials. Our Surj Patel NYC, that's s-u-r-a-j-p-a-t-e-l-n-y-c NYC, that's our Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And then uh, our website is uh, www.june23.nyc because we know that uh, one of the biggest reasons people don't vote in the primaries is because they don't know it's coming up. So we made the URL the date of the election. So please t- take a look at june23.nyc.
1: Uh, great. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks. So that was Suresh Patel, candidate for the 12th Congressional District here in New York. And looking ahead next week, we will have our first explainer episode from Julia Agos. Julia, can you tell us a little bit about what that will entail?
0: Right, Andrew. So... For this season, we're going to be mixing up our election coverage with some explainer episodes um, alternating weeks. So next week, we're going to do an episode on this bail reform mess that seems to be unfolding in the New York state legislature. As most of you probably know, in 2019, New York passed sweeping bail reform eliminating Cash bail entirely. And since the implementation of these reforms, there have been some mysterious upticks in crime, and people on both sides of the aisle and people on both sides of the aisle seem to have something to say about that. Yeah, so we're going to be breaking down this bail reform discussion for you. We have some exciting guests coming on, so stay tuned for next week.
1: Looking forward to it. So
0: that's our show. If you liked today's episode, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us because that helps other listeners find our podcast. And
1: follow us on Twitter at Prickly Podcast to stay up to date in between episodes.
0: A special thanks to our Prickly team and our editors, George Bodarki and Robin Shannon. Thanks for listening. See you next
1: week.